You're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I am editor and host, Billy Lennon. On this episode, I'm going to read a review that we published, written by Dr. Unenbot on Timothy Faust's book, Health Justice Now, Single Pair, and What Comes Next, about the reviewer. Dr. Unenbot, MD, MSc, is a graduate of the University of Texas Medical Branch and is trained in internal medicine and sleep medicine. He has practiced in Texas, Kansas, and Ohio, and studied health policy, planning, and finance at the London School of Economics and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He is also the health and society editor for the Cleveland Review of Books. About the author of the book, Timothy Faust's writing has appeared in Splinter, Jacobin, and Vice, among others. He has worked as a data scientist in the healthcare industry, before which he enrolled people in ACA programs in Florida, Georgia, and Texas, where he saw both the shortcomings of the ACA and the consequences of the Medicaid gap firsthand. Since 2017, he's been driving around the United States in his O2 Honda CRV, talking to people about health inequity in their neighborhoods. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. I also sat down for a short conversation with Dr. Bott which follows the reading of this review. Published on January 20th, Dr. Unenbot, titled, The Atypical Messenger We Need, on Timothy Faust's Health Justice Now. Published by Melville House in August of 2019, 128 pages. Health Justice Now, Single Payer, and What Comes Next concludes with Solidarity Now, Solidarity Forever. While not a typical way to end a detailed book about health policy in my experience, this rhetoric is for the better. Melville House's new book is not written by the usual suspects from the health policy world, but from a Wisconsinite heavy metal and wrestling fan with a Texas flag tattoo. Activist and single-payer campaigner Timothy Faust brings an unruly outsider perspective to healthcare and the medical industrial complex. He brings the fire of passion to the single-payer Medicare-for-all cause and the message of health justice. What's the message? It's a message not repeated enough by those who know better. The American private health insurance system kills, maims, and bankrupts. And for those with mental health or substance abuse problems, it locks you up in jail. It is designed to fail with or without the Affordable Care Act. Faust should know, as he worked in the health insurance industry enrolling people into ACA programs in the South. Tinkering with the current system, he considers the Affordable Care Act to be a tweak, will not address the systemic mistake of building a national health care system on private, for-profit health insurance sponsored by employers. Faust views Medicare for All as a federal, universal, single-payer program for all residents of the United States as the solution, He accepts no inferior substitutes proffered by the Center for American Progress and other Beltway organizations. No other program would help all Americans from coast to coast the way that Congresswoman Pramila J. Paul's House bill and Senator Bernie Sanders' Senate bill would. Democrat from Washington and Independent from Vermont, respectively, by the way. A single program with a single insurance risk pool with a single budget represents a huge stride towards efficiency and equity that the current fragmented public-private multi-payer system can never have. The second message is the second half of the title, What Comes Next? Tim Faust, a 
a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, does not see Medicare for All as the end goal. Rather, Medicare for All would be a tool for bringing health justice to the masses. Medicare for All becomes a strong lever to address social injustices such as pollution, joblessness, mental health, and substance abuse. Specifically, it would address the social determinants of health, the inequities and inequalities that affect the vast majority of one's health even before entering the healthcare system. What are the social determinants? The World Health Organization defines them as the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age, which are shaped by the distribution of money, power, and resources at global, national, and local levels. The term began when Dr. Michael Marmot began to uncover health inequalities among government workers in the United Kingdom in the Whitehall study, despite the National Health Service being free at the point of usage. Your health is shaped by more than just health care. Faust focuses on a few of these determinants, such as housing and food. A common issue I personally see is housing. Homelessness and housing insecurity increase health care costs as people pursue hospitalization for a problem that is more social than medical. Lack of affordable, secure, and consistent housing also leads, in part, to an inability to make appointments or take medications or refrigerate insulin. Food insecurity, linked to perennially low incomes or living in a food desert, which are areas without grocery stores, affects the health of millions of Americans. To adapt, they buy canned or processed foods because they cannot afford or access fresh fruits and vegetables locally. This does not make their diabetes or high blood pressure any better, as dietary compliance is just as important as taking medicine. Part 2. Spreading the Message In 2017, as a 30-year-old, Faust embarked on a multi-state tour of the USA. He learned about health issues around the nation, from Houston to Idaho to Pittsburgh. The book allows regular people to tell their personal stories of how the American health system has harmed their health, finances, and sanity. Many have buried friends and family members before their time. Sharing stories in public, a strategy currently being implemented at Sanders' presidential campaign town halls, gives regular people a first step into activism, advocacy, and community. As Faust writes, our goal is not just insurance, but emancipation. His best example of regular people gaining their voice starts in northern Idaho. A community upset about school funding began a citizen's campaign for public education. After this victory, it became Reclaim Idaho and began a statewide conversation from city to suburb to trailer park about health care. Since the state refused to expand Medicaid, Reclaim Idaho put a Medicaid expansion referendum on the ballot. Proposition 2 passed by 61% of the vote in the vast majority of counties on November 6, 2018. This is what emancipation looks like. Building communities, building power, building victories. Victories like Medicaid expansion increase political participation and voting. Winning single-payer at a national level will require dozens of such groups. However, one small knock can be made on the book. Faust could have stepped back from the abundant details of the human cost of the current system to look at the cost of not changing the system. How much would healthcare cost in 20 years without single payer? 
How many people would be uninsured? How many would have died or gone bankrupt? How far would life expectancy fall, as it has for three years in a row, without decommodifying health? How low would we rank internationally in health outcomes? Worrying trends in the future include private equities move into buying hospital chains and now physician practices. Large physician group practices have been gobbled up by Wall Street. When hunting for a job in 2018 after a move, I found out that a rival to my employer had been bought out by Summit Partners, a Boston private equity firm. The Journal of the American Medical Association noted risks to physician autonomy and the primacy of the patient-physician relationship when investment funds call the shots. Wall Street has found a recession-proof industry. Fighting for Medicare for All becomes a fight against the financial industry's $42.6 billion in healthcare deals of nursing homes, hospitals, practices, staffing companies, and so on. Similarly, the favored health policy experts of the political media medical industrial complex, such as Dr. Atul Gawendi, New Yorker magazine and Harvard, and Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Obama advisor, UPenn, and the Dartmouth Atlas Gang, the inventors of the Accountable Care Organization, are all due for a reckoning. Their soft bigotry of low expectations for the world's most expensive healthcare system reveals them for the part-time tinkerers and prestigious profiteers they always were. Tim Faust's long hair, bandana, and tattoos stand out in the crowd of accredited health policy wonks, but he can cite the literature up with the rest of them. He is not the typical messenger, and that is exactly what we need right now. Coming up next, my conversation with Dr. Anand Bhatt. Talking with me now is Dr. Anand Bhatt, our health and society editor. Um, and he reviewed Tim Faust's um, Health Justice Now, what's it called? Yes. Yes. It's great to be here, William H. Lennon. The second. The second, comma, editor. Yes. That is, that is, it is I. I don't. I kind of like got weirdly obsessed with somehow integrating talking about healthcare into like the scope of what the journal will cover. Just given how big that the you know how, how large that is in the Cleveland economy and stuff like that. It's an essential part. The meds, eds, and feds, as they call it. The meds, eds, and feds. <laughs> the only jobs available in the Rust Belt, I'm told. <laughs> Or could you give us a little um, background beyond what you wrote about who Tim Faust is, maybe? Um, I, I personally had never heard of him until 2017. Um, I moved to Kansas City, Kansas, and uh, I found um, some local activists, and uh, they told me about this guy who was talking about health policy and why we need single payer. And my first question was, who, who the heck is this guy? I've never heard of him. And um, from what I understand, he's originally from Wisconsin, but he lived in Texas and he's got a Texas uh, tattoo. 
So I'm always fond of Texans, being a native Texan myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's, uh, I believe, uh, a Rice University graduate, and maybe he has a computer background, I'm not sure, but he worked, I think, in some point in the insurance industry, maybe doing some coding or doing some sort of work in the uh, billing uh, uh, at some point. And uh, I think came to find it to be um, uh, a big issue signing up people uh, in, uh, I think, three southern states uh, for the Affordable Care Act uh, under Obamacare, which is the formal, uh, you know, the nickname. And uh, he he felt like it wasn't working. Um, He also has some friends with health issues. Uh, One of them has disabilities and uh, he himself uh, mentions openly um, um, that he has some uh, uh, mental health issues, uh, and uh, I think that's probably how he became to be came to be so passionate about it. Um, so, um, not really part of the quote unquote uh, cr- credentialed health policy elite I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, somebody willing to drive to uh, I think you know most states in the country and just have people hear and talk about healthcare and uh, share and hear their stories. And now he's published a book about them, including many of the stories and things he's learned on the road. The- I think what he does uh, that nobody else does is really address ask, the yeah. general public. Um, and addressing the general public, I, I feel that there's nobody, um, there's no a public space for the public to get involved in general, when you talk about health policy, you have about uh, two or three different uh, communities that get this information. So you have the academic community, which is doing research and uh, I know researching Medicare claims data to make uh, quantitative research. You have insurance companies, which may sponsor conferences and, and, and uh, uh, have uh, a dialogue about this. And then you have uh, medical associations, which also talk about health policy issues. And then there's the journals and, you know, those three worlds intersect. But there's nowhere, no place for the general public to talk about these things. You know, occasionally in Cleveland, we have the city club and they have some programming. Um, that's that's important, too. Like they have the you know state Medicaid director talk, uh, for example. Uh, there's some important things. But in general, there's no place for like the lay person to go talk and hear about this health policy issue. So I think in general with his talks, Tim Faust is doing that, reaching, you know, places that, you know, people won't even visit, like, uh, uh, you know, Kansas City. He was in Idaho. He was in uh, um, um, uh, Michigan. He was in many states. So I think those people, if they're going to have those conversations, they're not going to leave Ann Arbor. They're not going to leave New York or Boston. And so, you know, this that, these conversations can only happen in about five to ten cities. So I don't think that's useful. I think there's a thirst in the public to hear this because it's not going to be in the newspapers at least not the mainstream newspaper uh, the, the 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 national newspapers um it might be in their local newspapers uh, but it's not enough it's not a place to speak in person about it and it's not going to be on tv so i think there's a real thirst for it then in terms of the book the book is to that same audience that wants to hear this in an unvarnished way and um what he's telling the general public in the book is that Hey, delivering health care is complicated. Delivering mental health is complicated. Delivering uh, doctors in rural areas is complicated. That's all complicated. But financing the health care is simple. And Medicare for all 
is a simple way to finance healthcare at the national level. And I think uh, when people try to say, well, healthcare is complicated, they confuse the financing from the delivery. But, you know, he's sticking to something that the public can't understand, which is we needed Medicare for all as a federal universal financer of healthcare. Um, uh, delivering the healthcare will be down to local communities and doctors, and, and, and that's going to be complicated and difficult no matter where you are. And isn't one of like the damning statistics regarding that, that uh, despite having the worst outcomes, we pay more money per capita uh, on healthcare than anywhere in the world? Is that yeah, the case? Yeah, usually almost double. Yeah, almost double of, of, of the average country. Okay. The average country. So, and then if I'm understanding what, what you're saying correctly, it, it might not seem at first glance like the like a, a ton of change would happen just because Tim Faust is, is writing this book and going from town to town. But I think that you or him mentioned uh, this thing that happened in Idaho. Um, like on a small scale, if like the right dominoes fall and like the right sparks get get caught, like then something can really happen on a grassroots level, you know? Yes. So, I mean, he, he talks about this group called Reclaim Idaho, which – uh, started with a school, you know, controversy or school funding issue, and eventually became a proponent for expanding Medicaid. And um, that program um, uh, expansion went on the ballot because they have a referendum, um, just like Ohio does. And uh, they got it passed by the ballot because the state government didn't want to do it. And that is the sort of uh, those are the sort of groups we need in every state. Uh, that really talks to the community. Yeah, so he specifically says that Reclaim Ohio, uh, Idaho, Reclaim Idaho was uh, in the cities, it was in the trailer parks, it was in the rural areas, it was in the ski towns, and really brought the community together to talk about why Medicaid expansion would help them. Um, I think the crisis uh, in a lot of, you know, uh, what do you call them, quote-unquote red states, you know, I lived in uh, Kansas um, and uh, in Missouri, uh, in Kansas City, I was kind of on the border of both. Neither state plus Texas, where I'm from, have expanded Medicaid, and they're having huge crisis in rural hospitals shut down. And you know, we try in the United States to say that poverty is a um, poverty is a city problem, and it's not true. It's 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 very much a rural problem, and the rural hospitals really will shut down before the city hospitals do. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's doing. It's like pretty unique amongst other people doing similar things. What does he not do? Um, I think what the book doesn't do, which I'm, I mean, maybe he's not familiar with it or maybe he's just focused on the activism. The one concerning trend I've noticed talking to some of my classmates uh, is that Wall Street is getting heavily involved in the actual practice of medicine. Um, so uh, Wall Street uh, is buying um, – uh, you know, these private equity companies have so much money, they don't know what to buy with it. And uh, I think the number I got was $42 billion was spent last year on buying healthcare companies, whether it's hospitals, whether it's dialysis centers, whether it's uh, chains of, uh, of nursing homes. So that's billions of dollars. So um, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was a question of like, oh, should doctors work for hospitals? Isn't that 
a conflict of interest because won't the doctor not serve the patient? They'll serve the hospital first, you know? And uh, now, you know, hospitals have their own issues like the quote unquote non-profit Cleveland Clinic, the non-profit Cleveland Clinic. Um, Apparently they call themselves the enterprise from my, the enter- from my, yeah, in- yeah, from no, my internal the, sources. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the uh, internal emails will, yeah, refer to these things as um, clinical enterprise, uh, clinical arm. Um, there's a lot of those that terminology going around. So, I mean, you can argue about hospitals ethics, but we definitely know private equity and Wall Street have no ethics at all. And they are directly buying assets uh, like practices. So uh, I've heard that Sound Physicians, um, I think, is one company which employs many doctors in many states, is owned by a private equity group. Um, a radiology group, I think in Columbus, is owned by a private equity company. Um, basically, you find a group where there's older doctors about to retire, and then you just buy them. And then you, you know, then they have a business which is recession proof, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's similar, apparently, uh, to how they're buying um, uh, McDonald's and, 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 and fast food chains. I've heard that they, you know, like, you know, how McDonald's doesn't own that many um, restaurants, right? They're all owned by local franchisees. So I heard they're buying like regional franchisees. Uh, private equity would buy, you know, the middleman. Um, so now they'll own like, I don't know, a hundred franchises of McDonald's in Ohio uh, instead of some local, you know, car dealership guy or whoever. So, you know, you're, you're getting the, all the, the, the sort of middle layer of the economy is, is being sucked, you know, in many ways into uh, the financial system. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of like the competition that engenders amongst hospitals, I, I think I understand that like even between like the two biggest hospitals in Cleveland, I mean, I don't know if Metro is, but between like university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic there, you can't, they can't like transfer patient data between the two of them, which seems like it would be good for patients. Ostensibly. Oh yeah. yeah. For, well, in that specific in the case of Cleveland, uh, uh, university hospitals doesn't have the same electronic medical record as Cleveland Clinic and Metro. So first of all, it'd be more difficult. I've heard at least three stories why that hasn't happened. Was one more thing you wanted to talk about, um, like the old guard of healthcare policy people? Oh yeah. Like well, Wendy, or what was the last thing you wanted to talk about? Oh, the, the thing is, is that like, I guess he's, uh, you know, Tim Faust is sort of a new, um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to say the word expert, but definitely a new activist on the scene. And he's a new voice, you know, and, you know, he summarized in good detail a lot of the very important references and, and debates and topics. Um, and uh, it's a new voice out there. And uh, in general, I think we need new voices. We need younger voices. We need non-doctors, non-insurance companies, um, you know, involved in this debate as well. Uh, I think uh, uh, it, it's probably a little early, but I think uh, exposing um, other people may be the next phase because I think right now, if you look at um, a lot of the political experts on TV, they're getting exposed for their conflicts of interests, you know, when they make certain comments and, you know, you found out that they work for so-and-so or they have a job with so-and-so. Uh, and then our military policy, you see a lot of people who are really pro-war um, you know, are, are working for, or somehow connected to, uh, defense companies and military companies. So 
Uh, I think that's starting to be exposed. We might in the near future um, start seeing some of these health experts be exposed as well. Um, the problem is they're not on TV, so you know, uh, like they used to be. But I think a lot of them. I think I think there's it's 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 the time is ripe to see the conflicts of interests and why they can't say what the data show because you know he, he's citing the same you know more or less most of the data I've seen um, saying more or less what mainstream people who follow this say and uh, um, why can't they just say that you know if this is what it if this system cannot even theoretically work then we should change it so are they sort of like uh, these people you're talking about harmful because they're like apologists for this system uh, yes that's one way to put it yes they're apologists or they they act like they're very small changes or revolutionary um you know they're like oh if we do this one thing it'll work but you know the big thing is that the way we finance like you said is double you know the average developed country per person so no like that's the, those little tweaks you know those maybe will be helpful after we have medicare for all but a lot of them won't be helpful now or later a lot of them are actually harmful yeah and i think just one more thing to add on, on a personal level like a, a lot of the, the this rhetoric you know that's kind of people would say that faust and maybe like bernie sanders are so far like left field with this stuff what they're saying about healthcare is so radical but when i like describe you know, because I, I, I live part of the year in London, and, and when I uh, talk to my friends here about our healthcare system, it's so foreign to them. Like, we're not, we're, like, this, we're, like, totally radical the opposite direction. Like, we're the abnormal ones. You know oh, yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, like, mean I studied in London. We all understand that, doctors, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I studied in London. I met doctors from the yeah, entire world. Yeah, yeah. What we do is 100% insane. It's completely insane. It doesn't work. It theoretically can't work. It practically won't work. Tweaking here, tweaking there won't work. Putting more money won't work, you know, because we're already doing that. And, um, you know, I mean, what we call a healthcare system is really a employer-controlled private insurance system reimbursement um, economy. That's really what it is. It's not... You know, you're saying it's healthcare, but it's really not. It's employer-controlled private health insurance reimbursement economy, and it's really not there for optimizing people's, you know, actual health. And it's not going to, you know, I mean, the UK is a great example where, you know, I know there's been a lot of cutbacks since I left in 2010, but I mean, as far as I can tell, the outcomes are still pretty good. You know, we're still seeing some good outcomes. I know there's been a lot of cutbacks and there's a lot of uh, suffering with the austerity. But um, here there's been no healthcare austerity in terms of the um, overall GDP growth of healthcare. It's going up and up and up. Um, yet the outcomes are getting worse. I think uh, we've had three years of life expectancy falling. It doesn't make any sense. That's the thing that gets that gets me like the, the number that makes no sense because you'd expect everything to improve if you're spending that money. That's the reason you spend money like for things to progress. And if things are going backwards when you're spending more money. What like it, you work. really are messing up? Yeah. I mean, it, it can't work if you look at um, 
you know, uh, the Bernie Sanders plan, like it's going to cover dental and vision. And, you know, you see that, uh, you know, the British system doesn't cover vision from what I remember. And it, uh, they have some dental support, but it's, it's not free, but you know, it's like, Oh, well, you know, they don't have that in other countries. How can Bernie Sanders say he'll cover dental and vision? And I'd be like, well, if Britain spent $10,000 a person, instead of $4,000 a person, <laughs> they probably could cover vision. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, they probably, maybe they only need to spend 6,000 or 7,000, but if you spend $10,000 per person, yeah, you probably can cover dental. I don't, I, I mean, I don't, it's, the system doesn't work. It doesn't matter how much money you pour into but, it. But we have to keep people's, like the per, we can't spend that money though, because Elon Musk has to pay all that money to have his brain be preserved in a vat so he can live forever. You know? I mean, that amount of money that he's spending on that is still microscopic. Yeah, I true, mean, I mean, we're talking about three point two what three point two trillion dollars a year spent on healthcare. Mm -hmm. Even even Elon Musk is is nothing compared to that. Mm -hmm. Three point two trillion, you know, per year. So like, oh yeah, Elon, you know, like no, like it's not designed to work. And I, and I even I was even telling somebody at a presentation a couple of days ago. Uh, remember. For every dollar you pay out of pocket, okay, for every $15 you pay out of pocket, $85 is being paid by insurance or the government. So, I mean, you think it's expensive on your end. What do you think it is on the other end? You know, so it's a complete ripoff. And again, unlike any other program, left or right, you could argue about spending more for this program or that program. Healthcare, Medicare for all literally would be more stuff for less money so I, that's why i don't think it like you said in other countries they'd be like that's insane like if you can get more stuff for less money and it's more efficient yeah, it's pretty good like, you, 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 that seems like you just want to give it yeah. right yeah you can argue like oh if we do this program or that program that costs more money fine but like this is literally we'll save you money and you get more stuff like that means you just don't want to give it to people <laughs> mm -hmm. well any any other thoughts or I think that we've covered a lot, most of the most of the stuff. Most of the, yeah, uh, I, I think we've covered it. Um, I don't think I have anything else to add. Cool. Well, Anand, uh, thank you so much for talking with me. About... Well, thank you, uh, William H. Lennon the second, comma editor Esquire. Oh, much obliged, much obliged. Take care, Anand. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. I'd like to thank Matt Richmond, who is a radio guy, for all the time he spent teaching me about how to record something like this. My co-editor, Joe Mastrantoni, who has also given me fantastic advice, and my family for their support. I'd like to give a special shout out to some of our friends in the community, namely Max Bax Books, Visible Voice Books, Loganberry Books, Literary Cleveland, Barnhouse Journal, Cleveland scene, and literally anybody who has given me advice or helped out since we've started this thing. We cannot do this without your efforts and goodwill. Also, shout out to Morning of Black Star, LCD Sound System, and Projection Hotline for the music. Check out our articles on our website and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Books. That's C-L-E Review Books. We just sent out another call for pitches, which is online, if you are interested in contributing. And finally, a physical issue is in the works. Exciting times indeed. Signing out, this is Billy Lennon, 
We'll see you next time on the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Mm-hmm.